welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Aaron Bush, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Elad Levy, founder and CEO of Dive. Elad, welcome. Hi, Aaron. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Of course, this is going to be a lot of fun today. The main theme of today's conversation is going to be game analytics, and we'll also be spending time discussing what you and the team are building at Dive. But I actually want to start with some background because, Elad, you are a serial entrepreneur who has seen a lot and done a lot. And according to, to LinkedIn, Dive is the fourth company you founded. So I thought it would be fun to initially lay the foundation for this conversation just by unpacking your journey and digging into some of the lessons learned along the way. Does that sound cool with you? Yes, of course. It's, uh, it's, it's just fun. Like building companies and products is something I, I really enjoy and I do it for years. So for me, it's, it's, it, that, that is my actual hobby. I don't have hobbies. So Awesome. Yeah, I relate with a bunch of that too. So your first three companies, Centuno Solutions, Go Wild Casino, and then Pacific Interactive, I believe all had something to do with online or social casino. Um, so I'm just curious, why did you narrow in on that market? And what did you learn about operating in the casino genre over that decade? I actually started, I mean, we have a mandatory um, military service in Israel. So I was recruited for a cybersecurity team and I worked in cybersecurity for the first two years of my life. And then when I got out, I like the, it's just, they needed someone on cybersecurity for an online casino. So that that's just how I ended <laughs> up in that industry. It was kind of a coincidence. It wasn't planned. So the first company, it's still it still exists. Triple Eight, it's a, it's a big one, and uh, I. When you are inside a company, and I'm sure that it happens to many entrepreneurs, you think to when you see things that are done wrong, you think to yourself, "Well, there might be a. I mean, there there must be a better way to do that." So that was basically it. I said, "We can probably big like build a brand." and execute it better. So that's exactly what we did. And um, after a few years, uh, that was with Go Wild, the online gambling and online casino industry has this nightmare called regulation and legal, and it's exhausting. It's like, in instead of working, you just argue with legal about, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do user acquisition here? Can you use this technology? It's it's just not fun at some point. So uh, I, th that's the point that we switched to social casino. And social casino is kind of a, it's, it's a very nice, <laughs> it's a very nice trick of like, uh, basically, producing the same content, but without the legal problems. Social casino, you cannot, you play for virtual coins. So 
you basically uh, can deposit money, but you cannot withdraw it. And because you cannot withdraw it, then the clause of betting is not uh, relevant. So it's not really gambling. Right. No, that's, that's super interesting. And I'm curious too, um, we'll, we'll talk more about kind of what you learned and how you improved as you went along in social casino. But I also just want to step back and just ask as a founder, how did you improve as a founder <laughs> at each step of all your, your four companies? Um, I imagine you've, you've seen and learned quite a bit along this journey so far. Yes, of course. You, it's it's natural because it's like you take the lessons from every. You, you just every founder has his body filled with scars, basically, of every company he ever built, and those scars are you know the lessons that he drags with him forever. Whether it's like it's the partners that you choose uh, and keeping the company lean to not overspend, and a ton of lessons and working with small teams and. This is all stuff that you, you know, learn along the way and it's normal, but obviously from every company, I, I learned a different lesson and um, uh, it's fun because it I kind of like took all that experience and put it into dive. Yeah. Could you maybe just walk through like a lesson that you learned from each of those companies and maybe how you've implemented it? For me, and it's actually relevant to today's market is keeping lean. It's very easy to like burn a ton of money on, I know, office. It used to be offices. Now it's mostly remote, but, you know, offices and, you know, catering in the office and a lot of like uh, spend overspending a lot of stuff or hiring people that are super expensive. But today the world is actually really small and keeping it lean is really easy. So it's just, you know, you have a Google, you have, you know, the Google G Suite and Slack and a few like Jira and a few other tools and that's it. And you already build a remote team. So keeping it lean was something that helped us survive always. And we kept it lean all the way, like un until we sold the, with the previous company, Pacific Interactive House of Fun. I'm, I'm always, it's, it's, uh, it's funny, but it's real. Our offices were some like, like in, in all the apartment that was above a pizzeria, that was the one in Buenos Aires. And the one in Israel was like in the worst neighborhood that you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, you know, it, it all adds up, you know, if you save a few bucks here and a few bucks there, it, it all adds up and, uh, you know, and then it, Big companies also do that over time. So Platica at some point declouded everything. They said, why would we pay, you know, why would we overpay, you know, the cloud costs when you can cross the street and buy a hard drive for a fraction of the price? It doesn't make sense. So they declouded everything. And if I have to choose whether to spend money on, I don't know, on cloud, on beautiful offices or perks, or giving bonuses to the people, I would definitely prefer this money going to the people instead of those things, you know, <laughs> because that at least my point of view. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, a timeless lesson, especially as, you know, the economy, the industry is, is cyclical, yeah, but staying lean affects how you reinvest at any point in that that time. And, you know, in general, focus is um, a valuable trait to have. 
anyways, I want to um, talk a bit more about the last company you founded before we get into Dive, which was Pacific Interactive, which developed House of Fun. It ended up being acquired by Playtica in 2014. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I mean, as your your third company there, you know, that shows that you learned and improved to be able to have you know a pretty a pretty solid exit there um, and the the social casino space. But I'm curious also what you learned about integrating a company and a game into a larger conglomerate like Playtica. How was that experience for you? Yeah, House of Fun was, uh, I think the first and most important thing that we had was timing. And then we had the team, you add to that capital, and there you go. You have like a formula for success. So uh, we got acquired super fast, even too fast, if you ask me. Uh, But Platica, I mean... It was a it was a great experience. It was fun, but then uh, for me personally, um, I really love small teams, and I operate better on small teams. So when you have a I don't know thousand over a thousand people, and when you want to hire someone, you need to like argue with the HR on why they need to allocate and you know open a position, and, and there's a budget every it. These things, to be honest, are exhausting. So uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of like inter-office, co- there's like a lot of game studios in Platica. So we've learned a lot. They learned a lot from us. We, there's a lot of exchange of uh, uh, know-how about uh, how to operate games, how to monetize better, how to improve user acquisition. For me personally, I I prefer the, the lean and small it's more agile and easier to move this way. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm starting to notice a pattern uh, of what makes you exhausted. It's, you know, people setting the rules for, for what you can and can't do and how, how you're allowed to move, uh, which yeah. is very entrepreneurial of you. That, um, that sandbox is not fun. Like playing in that sandbox is not <laughs> fun for many people. That's why they, you know, they say, I, I want to do my own thing. And most of them do. Right. Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, to hear about your your take. I'm also curious, you mentioned that the, the acquisition might have happened too early, in your opinion. Can you unpack that a little bit? And maybe just like if there's a broader lesson in there? We, we were growing like crazy. Um, and uh, our multiplier that, multiplier that we sold the company was pretty low. The... The contract was pretty favorable on their side. Uh, And I think that probably a strong advisor would have helped in that sense. Something that we were missing because many VCs, uh, first of all, many VCs are not that hands-on, okay? And we didn't raise from a VC. We raised like from a private equity, which was another Uh, maybe was not the right uh, way to go because yeah. VCs understand when 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 they see something grow, they will let it cook a little bit more so they can make more money. Uh, the mentality when you have a private investor is like he sees an offer, he, he grabs it because you know he cashes out and gets some money over his investment. So uh, we were growing like really fast, really really fast, and. Uh, 
in my opinion, we probably should have waited a bit longer, but, you know, an opportunity presented itself and uh, eventually it was decided to sell. And it was fun because we got a really sweet deal from Platica. They offered the founding team to kind of have an, an another exit with them because they were preparing to sell. So uh, mm. we kind of sold the same company twice in a way. <laughs> well, that's the way to do it. Why not? Um, th yeah. That's super interesting. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, your time at Playtica, is that when the idea for Dive came about or was that later? No, Playtica was a, that, that's something that is true for big companies. It's a playground. It's like a, it's like a playground. It's like a, you know you have the toys and budget to experiment, so you can build tools, you can build teams, and then after a year, kill the team or kill a product. And there is a ton of budget, so it's easy to experiment with that budget. So I was lucky enough to um, grow this company to. At, at its peak, I think that House of Fun reached like 300 million in annual growth or something like that, like a crazy number. Sometimes I can't even remember, but it was like huge. And then I obviously, like every other game studio, started developing everything, like started using third party tools, but ended up developing everything in house because at some point you need an edge over your competition and you cannot get that edge from an off the shelf tool. You must develop something of your own. So we did a ton, everything from like marketing tools and CRM and then like engagement and live ops and data, a ton of just custom tools that helped us have an edge in the industry. And yes, uh, sometime after I got out, I started thinking, what if we pack this whole thing into all this knowledge uh, that I have gained into a service and offer a better version of it because in Playtic actually the whole all the tools that we've built were tailored to House of Fun. That's another mistake that many companies do. They don't build and it's okay. It's not. It's normal. Like they have a successful game, they start building tools, but the tools are tied. They're like completely tied to that game. They cannot extrapolate those tools and use them for another game. So Dive was like, let's build the tools first, make it platform game agnostic, you know, like it can, we can hook it up to everything and then see like, you know, it, it, it's a different approach. You know, one is the, like, we start with the tools, the other, we start with the product. If you're building a new company, definitely start with the product. That's the most important thing. For me, it was kind of like, I, I, I had the time, I had the money, I bootstrapped Dive, I said, what the hell, you know, let's take a year or so and, you know, take our time and build it right and see what happens then. Cool. I also didn't realize Dive was, was bootstrapped. Have you raised any money up to this point no, or has no, it no. been bootstrapped no, it the whole was, way? Uh, no, it was bootstrapped the whole way. There was a couple of angel investors that asked to get in because they wanted to be part of it. But no, we it was bootstrapped and we got into profit uh, like a couple of years afterwards. So I managed to get the money I put back and that, and I don't need to put any more money from my pocket. So that always makes me happy, you know, like as an yeah. entrepreneur investor. That's really cool. 
Congrats yeah. on congrats Thanks. on the success of doing it that way. <laughs> well, I guess before we move on, we should probably better define what Dive is um, and what exactly it is that you're building. So Dive, you've now been building for four years now. Um, could you, to start, uh, maybe just fill the audience in on what exactly does Dive offer and who exactly do you serve? So... I pack 20 years of my knowledge and experience into a company and we started doing consulting just like you guys. But then we realized that the tools out there suck because they don't, they're not designed, like all the tools out there are not designed for games. They want to grab a bigger market share so they target apps or dating apps or e-commerce or like different but you cannot compare an you know e-commerce cart to a shooting game or like a builder or an mmorpg so the whole dynamics around data and and live ops and crm everything around it changes so we started just developing tools because we couldn't find any and then it became a combination of a platform and a service. And this is this is Dive. Dive is a combination of a platform and a service. Uh, we deploy our platform and our tools. Those tools are designed, designed 100% for games. And uh, I think we're the only, probably the only, there are a lot of tools out there, but we are probably the only game, uh, ex-game operators. So we know how to run games at scale and that's a huge difference because we've been on the other side of the game studios and we know at every point what they need, whether it's data or live ops or, or anything of that sort. So this is Dive. We, we deploy our platform and then we understand that there is no one size fit all. Uh, so we custom and tailor the platform and the tools and the service to every client. We have weekly calls with every client. We sit with the, you know, we speak with the product managers and we have a monetization manager also in our team to see if we can help them uh, get a bump in revenue. So it's, it's a combination of a few things that basically all focus on data first, because for us, this is the the, if, the, if the foundation of data is right, then everything around it starts making sense, whether it's live ops or marketing or analyzing game progression or you know churn or whatever you want to get insight for. Awesome. And could you provide just a snapshot of like the current state of the business at this point? Four years on, like what level of scale are you operating at? Like how many companies are you serving? Whatever you feel comfortable with. Every game for us is an overhead. We are serving 80 games. We crossed a 60 million MAU, monthly active users mark, uh, not too long ago. And we're huh. probably the only cross-platform company out there because we do mobile PC web and then Roblox, Minecraft, and Web3. So... We cover basically probably every platform. If you even if you have a messenger game, we would probably be able to adapt. So people do not realize that there's a, a lot of low hanging fruit in platforms that are not popular. 
And we have adapted to those needs by building different tools and SDKs to hook up with those platforms. So uh, today, that's the state of the business. We are profitable for the past uh, two years. And uh, our platform, we call it a platform because it's just a ton of tools that we developed. We started with data validation and integrity, and then we added segmentation and A-B testing, campaign management, remote configs, a ton of a ton of things. And then we start out of box with like 20, 30 dashboards that we build for every game studio. But we 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 got to like we have game studios that we we have four product managers and we got to building them 300 dashboards because you know they need a ton of different angles to like look at the at the business or the game from different like like from this angle from that angle from like from a total revenue of the game studio from like sometimes it's just aggregation of all their games because CEOs it's funny but CEOs just want to wake up in the morning and see the revenue report they don't care about all the rest but game designer needs a, I don't know he wants to like test the game economy so he needs like a progression analysis or churn points in the game marketing they are marketing whatever whatever dashboard you build for them they need to download it to an excel it doesn't matter what you do (laughs) so they always need to download it to excel so it's always tables of you know campaigns and roi roas country it's it's the same things but so we hook up with everything We, we hook up with attribution providers and ads and facebook and google and we centralize everything in one place we build a data warehouse for every game studio for every game and it helps crossing when you have everything in one place you can extract a ton of insight because you can cross the the crash reports with the progression analysis with the user acquisition and it's it's it it gives a whole new level of like uh, I think it levels the field for game studios because big companies have been doing that for years so that is one of the reasons that they're very successful and will continue being successful because they're already at that point oh, and and I think this is why the consolidation is also happening in the industry but new mm-hmm. game studios really suffer because the only way to do that you cannot take an off-the-shelf tool, you have to either build an in-house team or take dive. <laughs> that's, like, that's the only, right. there, there are not a lot of options there, you know, but. Um, I guess one area I'd like to poke a bit deeper into, when you were talking about your time at Platika, you said the way that you built an edge was by building the tools in-house. And now you're on the other side of the fence, building the tools for everyone to create more of a level um, playing field, as as you put it, could you maybe just unpack a little bit more about why teams should work with you and dive instead of um, building their own tools for both like big teams and and small teams? Just like, could you unpack why that is and like what the like what the um, like extra value proposition of of dive is there? I think the number one problem is cost like many people many game studios are that's a really funny expression that they use we have a data guy there is no data guy it's like saying we have a developer you know but it's not just a developer there's a back-end guy there's a front-end there's like a ton of elements in a game it's the same thing for data 
There's an engineer, there's an analyst, there's data scientists, uh, there's a DevOps, data DevOps for like maintaining everything and waking up at night when a process fails. And it's, it, it's babysitting and it involves a lot of code. So building it in-house, you will have to probably start with at least two to three people on the headcount. And those are people that are really expensive because they get poached all the time by the competition. So that's the, you just start with like two to three people on the headcount, and then you add to that the tools. And the tools are really, really expensive. Like the off-the-shelf tools are super expensive. So we have, all our tools are proprietary, so we have a really competitive price and we can offer all that for a fraction of the price of what it would have cost you to build it in-house. Usually our competition is, yeah, it's like, I know that management decided to like build it in-house. Or if it's a really, really indie game studio with no funding, I just tell them, guys, use an off-the-shelf tool or something and get back to me when you have funding because we, we try not to work with unfunded game studios. Those are games that would probably never scale. Could you talk to me a bit more about your live ops tools? Uh, I'm just curious, um, even from your days, you know, at building House of Fun or even earlier, just what you have learned about better tracking live ops and how those learnings have been embedded into your data platform. So the way we treat live ops the same way we treat data. We tailor and customize it to every client, but there are several, let's call it generic, not generic, but for example, segmentation, you can segment by, you know, revenue or recency or the install date or stuff like that. But depending on the game, let's say that there's a game based on trophies, though you want to segment all the people that won over X trophies in their lifetime. This is a this is a custom attribute that you know we we will have to tailor for that client. So the same way we, we we're nothing about us is generic. We tailor and custom everything to every client. And uh, when you start doing live ops properly, you would start to see a bump in revenue or engagement immediately because different people consume content content in a different way. And the, and, the, and the engagement habit or the deposit habit for every type of player is different. Some people play five hours a day. Some people play five minutes a day. Some people will only play in the weekends. It, it's, it changes. And if you segment or personalize those, the content and the offers uh, properly, then you can increase uh, lifetime value because you keep them more engaged in the game. And so that, that's the way we see it. It's live ops is tools that helps maximize LTV, lifetime value. And the more you maximize LTV, the more you can spend on marketing. Great. And I'm curious, what's next for Dive? Is it more of the same scaling up or are you going to be adding new tooling, new features, uh, do something? What's next? So we noticed that uh, on the live ops side, 
many of the game studios use us as if it was a CRM. So we want to add more CRM features to our yeah. uh, tools. This is something that is so popular in other industries, but games really do not understand that. Like there's an onboarding journey that happens in a, in a standard CRM, like day one, welcome email, day two, this, day three, that, and, you know, day seven, I don't know, we give you an offer. You didn't convert, I don't know, day 10, we give you another offer, we lower the price point. There's like an, the whole journey in CRM that are really popular in e-commerce tools, but games are really behind in that sense. So we are trying to add these kind of cool features to games as well. How do you treat dormant users? How do you reactivate users that churn uh, or, or are likely to churn? So it's really like different buckets of engagements of, of users and then segmenting those buckets properly and treating them in a different way. So we're playing a lot with those kind of features and it's, it's mostly coming from the clients, like every healthy product company. Clients say, I need this. For example, we launched our tool and we have a calendar for our live ops. So you can ha you have you have an actual calendar that that you can drag and drop like sales or different activities. And the reason is because live ops and Marketing people, they, they work with calendar all the time. There's like, what do we have this month? Christmas, Holy, no, Halloween, I know, um, Father's Day, Mother's Day, whatever, you know. And then according to that, they start building the, the idea of the campaign, the art and stuff. So that's why we built a calendar. And then one of the first features that one of our clients said was clone month because <laughs> they're, they're lazy. They're like, hey, we, we need like a, you know, most of the months we do like, thanks God, it's Friday, lazy Sunday, you know, so let's clone month and do the whole thing again. <laughs> so uh, that was, it, it's coming from the clients, you know, the clients request those features and it's a small, it's still a small team where we're not even 15 people on the headcount. So we, we still keep it tight and lean and, you know, I, I prefer a small amount of people that work really hard than a lot of people that are like mediocre. So uh, we're yeah. still lean and efficient and uh, focus on, you know, on keeping it lean also for our clients. Uh, we actually monitor their infrastructure and cost every month. And if we see a deviation, then we contact them and start op helping them optimize that. We, you know, we, it, it's really our success our direct success is our clients. So it's really important for us that our clients succeed. I actually do intros from time to time to VCs, you know, because to help them out if they need to do another round or something. <laughs> and it's it's fine because I, I love the industry. It's something that it, the company didn't start from, you know, let's, let's build another company and sell it. It started from something fun as a boutique, you know, as a, something small and fun. And it came from passion you know, a different type of approach. Yeah. Well, that all sounds really interesting, especially how feedback from users is sort of pushing the scale of the vision, you know, as you said, to be a bit more like a CRM, to be 
even bigger yeah. and more exciting and it's happening but organically and i think that's it, really cool it is yeah and we we found like we find different types of clients all the time that's the fun part because we we went through this every every few like every year we find a different type of client so the last type of client we found lately was is publishers because publishers are like we're they're really good on deal sourcing and biz dev and user acquisition. They don't want to build a data team in-house. It's it's a pain, you know, they need to babysit that. It's a headache for them. So they're like, okay, they outsource everything to us. So we actually have a few publishers on mobile, on Web3, uh, uh, Roblox. So it's it's fun, you know, because we, we deploy all our BI platform and knowledge and we work with, you know, 10, 20, 30 games for a single client and it's really exciting. So that's a really new breed of client that started emerging lately. Cool, well let's shift gears and, and talk about game analytics a bit more broadly, lessons learned, best practices. Of course. teams at different stages should best use analytics. Um, and to start, I'm not sure how many um, like startups uh, use Dive versus larger companies, but through, through your experience with Dive or even as an advisor, uh, or mm -hmm. board member to various startups. What do you find that small teams often get wrong with game analytics or are too slow to set up? I think that data and product development in general has a specific order that you might, must follow. And sometimes I see, I know, game studios doing it wrong or wasting energy in the wrong places they, they will i know obsessed with d1 for example where i know if your d28 is high who cares about d1 <laughs> that's like the money comes from d28 it's not coming from d1 d1 is important if you're launching a hyper casual game <laughs> and, you know then then the first days are important but if it's an in-app purchases focused high ltv game as a service, call it whatever you want, or let's let's call it long-term content, quality content game, then D1 is not that important. You know, you can have a really horrible D1 as long as your tail is high enough so that the, we actually build a dashboard, we call it retention without D0, like we start the retention different, why? Because Let's say you have a, I don't know, a basketball game and for some reason it was published in a phishing website. So all the people that will come there, there will churn because they want phishing. They don't, they're not interested in basketball. And then your D1 will drop to, to its knees, you know, it will be really low. But then if you publish it in the right place and focus the traffic, then your D1 will spike. On the other hand, those who actually love the game and stay in the game because the content quality is good, that will reflect more on the D14, 28, etc. So quite often I tell game studios, guys, I mean, just who cares about D1, you know? <laughs> it's, I mean, depending on the game, of course, obviously, if it's a, you know, if it's a hyper casual, it's all about the first days. Right, uh, but um, we, we don't. We actually that makes sense. 
don't work a lot with hyper casual because we we try to look for games that will that are built to last you know like that will last for ages so um yeah well what about the uh, i'm also just curious about the flip side uh, of things too for the larger companies on that on that side of the spectrum you already mentioned how one lesson learned there is how sometimes larger companies they'll build tooling around one game instead of thinking a bit more broadly about how to serve the portfolio as a whole. Uh, I'm just curious if there are any other larger lessons learned or pieces of advice that you would have to, to larger companies who are wrestling with, with data and, and tooling too. I'm amazed, but we actually, I call it's another type of client that we have. I call it all dinosaurs. It's companies that exist in the industry for years. But for five or 10 years, tried building teams in-house and just got sick of it because it's, it's a very common thing that happens in technology, in data and technology. Uh, a guy comes, he builds an entire team and tools and everything. Then he gets poached by the competition and moves to another company. And the new guy that comes in said, everything the previous guy did is shit throw it away and let's start from scratch. Boom, three years migration, four years migration. And that happens all the time. So uh, we have a, you know, clients that come to us and are like upper management or product managers, like I'm, I'm sick of it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, they just want to see a report and they cannot even extract a report and they have tens of people. And it's quite, it's, it's something that happens quite often. If you build a data team in-house, you must have someone with experience. It's very hard taking a guy that worked in e-commerce and shifting him to games. It's And then I think the most important thing, and that's also a requirement for us to work with, you need a product guy that knows what he wants, like that knows how to ask the right questions because and, and we try helping and guiding even product managers sometimes on how to monitor the game economy or check for inflation if there's a live ops event and all of a sudden revenue drops. It's not, it's not rocket science. You know, you, 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 you gave too much free currency, then people stopped um, paying. You know, it's not, it's not that complicated. But many many even big companies get it wrong and i'm like whoa we, we released like they release like this huge feature and then the revenue drops i'm, I'm sure you guys see yep. it as well yeah it happens for sure uh i also i also want to discuss more of like the future of game analytics the games industry is always changing it seems like uh dive as a platform and as a team is you know flexible and has lots of customization to um, you know, support teams across the spectrum. One area you mentioned is Web3. So I, I'm kind of curious to hear your your take on that. Uh, and maybe specifically, how should these Web3 teams be thinking similarly or differently about their analytics, given, you know, the, the newer blockchain elements or open marketplaces that are now involved? And how is Dive positioned to help support those teams in those more customized ways too so we we have a few clients we have a few important clients we we're serving the sandbox we have chrome away we have a lot of uh, 
super interesting clients in that space. And our challenge was combining all the sources of data because some things are like, we try to collect as much as stuff as we can from the chain, obviously it's easy. So we connect to, I don't know, whatever you have, Polygon, um, use chain stack. So uh, Ethereum. Yeah. yeah, there's a gazillion types and, you know, and we try to take everything there, but you know, the same problems are happening there because uh, developers send garbage and, you know, when you try to organize this garbage, then you cannot extract insight if the data quality is not good. So we have with the, the same integrity tools that we use to control data coming from our SDK. We also applied it to the data coming from the chain. And then we combine this data with data coming from the actual client. If there is a, I know, if it's a website, if it's a, if it's a da Unity downloadable, uh, w whatever it is. So it's a combination of a few sources, which is something that obviously because we were, we can custom and tailor everything. It's very easy for us to do. It's kind of a niche if you ask me personally. I mean, I'm, I'm still waiting for a very high quality game to appear and really take control of the industry because people, it, it seems to me like a lot of people, they're not really players, the, the end users, they're users and they are busy with speculation and not playing. And it kind of yeah. contradicts my philosophy about games should be fun and content should be of good quality. So it, it kind of con contradicts these base rules for me. So it's, it's hard for me to <laughs> process it a little bit, you know, maybe I'm old school. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's there's definitely big question marks out there. I mean, I think if you just look at the cycle that we're that we're in right now, it definitely is, you know, the pretty standard hype cycle or even just like a, a U curve. If you look at the games that have come out and are planning to come out where we saw the explosion of the play to earn the very speculative games. And then now I was looking at the month of February um, and not a single notable Web3 game came out. Zero. Literally zero. Um, but we also know that there's a ton of funding and such um, for, for game developers and studios around the world that are making games. It's just the actual good games take time, whereas, you know, the initial Every, rush, it was more exactly. financialized Every, experiences. It, 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 it kind of reminds me of Roblox when it started, you know... Uh, it, it feels like hyper casual was forced into like Web3 feels like a kind of like a hyper casual metaverse, whatever you call it, was forced to have a payment method and, you know, they call it Web3 games. But it it's not natural, you know, and I, again, I think that, I, I always think that content is king. You cannot, you cannot build games from data. You build games right. by quality product and quality game design, and then you use data as a, as a channel for getting insight whether and, and getting feedback. And that feedback is not always coming through data. 
and dashboard, it's also coming from actual users that play the game or focus groups or whatever you want to call it. But I'm waiting for a company to actually launch. I mean, if, if you take a, I know, a Blizzard Activision game and you add Web3 to it, yes, that would probably make more sense. But, you know, as another payment, whatever. But building the whole game around it as a play to earn, it's kind of... That doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I guess my, my bottom line of just kind of talking about the hype cycle there is that in the next couple of years, I think we'll see more shots that are much more quality game first. Probably. And maybe by then, too, we'll see... They're getting better. You know, they are getting better. I mean, they are getting better because, you know, the art is better. I mean, I, I think a game should be fun and it should be an experience. Yeah, they will figure it out. Uh, eventually, they will probably figure it out and it will curve a niche just like a hyper casual. And hyper casual is in decline, obviously, because, again, you cannot sell. Uh, you, you cannot. You have like people will stick if the content is good. That's, you know, they, they will play it for five days and then throw it away and move to the next game. But you cannot build a company on hits. Well, you can because hyper casual was built that way, but <laughs> it, it kind of, most hyper casual companies ended up in the same place of let's build now a more casual or more quality game uh, because it's, it's hard like living from one hit to another hit. Yeah. I guess the the other emerging trend of note <laughs> recently is AI. Uh, so I just also just wanted to ask a question to you about um, about that, and um, I guess especially like how or if you think AI is going to change the way teams work with data, conduct analysis, run these sorts of tests um, in their games. Do you think about AI at all as you're you're building up dive and how that could change we things. Just think curious about to hear it, your but, take. Uh, but I again, like uh, there is a stages of a game that you know when it kicks off without funding, it needs really basic APIs. Then it grows. They need I know economy and progression analysis and churn. Then it scales again with marketing. They they need the user acquisition analysis and creative planning, uh, etc. Data is kind of the same thing. So from my experience, and I tested a lot of things, plain data analysis, like a human being sitting next to a product manager and analyzing the game insight with him is, I, I saw the most, like the biggest needle movement, you can say, the biggest revenue gains from that type of work. Just plain old, Data analysis, classic ad hoc analysis of human beings sitting with each other and bumping ideas. Uh, I guess the next step after that would be machine learning. And people confuse that a lot with AI, but it's machine learning, you know, prediction models, churn prediction. This is also something that will add you a bit of an edge because when you get to a certain scale and you need to squeeze half a percent or one percent, that's a lot of money. So that is for me the next step. Now, I'll be honest with you, most companies are not even there. They're still stuck on plain data analysis. So we're really far from AI. I mean, you can probably market the, 
buzzword tool and say we are doing that and this automatically but to be honest i mean even pricing it's like the the best models i've ever seen was built by human beings shift, sifting through data for months and then building a machine learning model and then you know testing that in the game but it you you cannot click a button button and magically things will happen it's 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 a myth it's not true even in machine learning every time you launch a model or like a scoring model you have to test it and then it takes a few months of data to validate it and it, so the, for me it's kind of a, a mirrors you know smoke so there's <laughs> a lot of smoke and mirrors there you guys work with game studios all the time and you consult them sometimes sometimes a change in the messaging of a pop-up will make way more money than trying to apply some you know ai voodoo to the game <laughs> i've seen it over and yep. over yep uh, I guess I'm curious, is there anything in the future of gaming analytics, any emerging trends, any anything else of note that you're excited about more generally about where the future of gaming analytics is going? I think that the tools and the platform that we built in Dive is uh, one of the few that... Uh, you can call a data, you can build a data-driven game with. This is something that uh, many, there are not a lot of, maybe the game, the biggest game studios do that, but most of the small ones are, they're like really light years away from that. And when I mean data-driven game, it means that it will adapt according to, you know, to your level, to the segment, to your deposit habit, and it's not something you can automate. It's something that you will tailor and customize. And the game studios that, you know, invest in that area would probably, I, I think that is the future. The Another interesting thing is I think that the classic KPIs are, are dead. It will be a bit harsh if I say that. So, but the classic APIs are like the, yeah, you need a D1 of this and a D7 of that. For example, we don't we don't look at the classic D1 anymore. We look at rolling retention, only on rolling retention because I know people play only in the weekends. People sometimes play only the weekends. So the their D1 will be horrible, but they will play every weekend. It doesn't mean he's a bad player. It just means that his login behavior or or his playing behavior is different. Uh, so um, we, we try to look at those metrics in a very different way than most uh, out-of-box, off-the-shelf tools and tailor it according to the game type. But I, hopefully people will uh, understand that. Like the, the experienced one understand that 100% because the new game studios are still learning about what is data. Some of them don't understand, like, you know, basic APIs. It's kind of a education mission that we have as part of our company. And we're doing a lot of blogs and, you know, trying to somehow pass the knowledge to other uh, game studios so that, you know, they can learn as well. But Right. 
Well, I have two final questions for you, yeah, um, Elad. Um, f- first, um, is there anything else in the games industry beyond what we've talked about today that you're particularly excited about? I know you've you've been an advisor to startups. You've sat <laughs> yeah. on boards. I know you look around a lot. Uh, do you see anything that excites you? Free to play started declining, and like many see that mm-hmm. already. Some of it is leaking to other platforms and some of it is because people just got sick of it. But on the other hand, I see more mid-core games coming to mobile and they are really fun. So, I mean, if you look at the last games in the last year, for example, that came out, they are really way more complicated. The, the production is like, the art, the production is way more complicated. It's not, not a game you, you launch in six months. You know, It's something that takes a couple of years to produce with a lot of art and quality content. And uh, I want my kids to play quality games. You know, I, I miss quality games. And uh, this is something that I'm really excited about. I wish, uh, I just wish that this trend will continue and we'll see more uh, mid-core or, you know, triple-A uh, game studios investing in mobile or iPad or, you know, something that is, you know, it's because it's a fun platform, you know, it's easy. You don't have to, like, do the whole PC special chair uh, headset and everything or a PlayStation. You just sit on the couch and, like, you can play Diablo. That's amazing, man. <laughs> this is amazing for me, you know? Yeah, I think it is amazing, and I think we'll see more of those kinds of games. Hopefully, um, those these companies with these games can navigate the the more difficult waters lately. You know, just figuring out all the you know post IDFA world. So it might take a little bit for that trend to truly accelerate. Maybe another year or, or eighteen months or something. I would guess, but I'm right there with you. There's a lot of exciting stuff that has a lot of. Potential, I mean, look at the. Um, you know, so. you look. I I love. Uh, I don't know if you. I mean, I don't know if you. There are like uh, in GDC. Every GDC, there are like the popular games that everyone are talking about. So yeah. you know the pre-pandemic GDC, everyone were speaking about hyper casual and I know like really like games that are really boring to me personally this gdc it's you know marvel snap and frozen city and like games that are that have a lot of depth you know and the the art is exciting and it's fun to play and it's just so i'm i'm enjoying it because i see quality games and i want i want my my kid to play that you know i prefer him playing that instead of roblox (laughs) to be honest you know Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, final question for you. Um, If any of our listeners want to learn more about Dive and reach out or follow you online, where should they go? So LinkedIn is the best thing. Um, I'm pretty hard to miss. Elad Levy Dive. But uh, you can just drop me an email at uh, elad at uh, dive.games. And Perfect. I'm super happy to, in GDC, I'm usually, I always find, find myself in some, you know, finger food and beer party, speaking with some indie game studio, explaining them about data and because I'm, it's fun for me. I'm, I'm always uh, happy um, sharing knowledge 
I think it helps the industry as a whole. Awesome. Well, I think people have a lot to learn um, from you and your experience too. Um, hopefully from this conversation, but hopefully for for future ones too. Um, but listen, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I know we're at time, so we'll have to wrap up here. For But thank you so much for joining and sharing thank your you. story and insights cool. and best wishes to the whole dive team going forward. Thanks. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.